The end of the year is a time when investors take stock of what happened over the preceding 12 months and look to anticipate what might happen in the year ahead. After an eventful 2023 for commodity markets, we look at the outlook for 2024 in this episode. Welcome to the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you are an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this podcast is for you. I'm Mubeen Tahir, Director of Macroeconomic Research and Tactical Solutions at Wisdom Tree. And I'm Nitesh Shah, Head of Commodities and Macroeconomic Research here at Wisdom Tree. Before we begin, I do need to state the following. To clarify, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. A note for our audience, in this discussion, we will refer to Wisdom Tree's outlook. If you wish to read the full report, you can find it on our website, wisdomtree.eu. In addition to commodities, the report also covers equities, thematic investing, and also cryptocurrencies. But on this show, we focus on commodities. And my co-host, Nitesh, is of course the author of the Commodity Outlook. So I'll be putting all the questions to him. So Nitesh, you talk about the idea of commodities being a late cycle performer in the outlook. Uh, now, it seems like the late stage of the economic cycle is getting extended more so than uh, was probably anticipated at the start of 2023. Does this bode well for commodities in your view? Yeah, Mabin, I think you uh, the nail on the head that uh, commodities are a late cycle uh, performer. And we've seen this uh, across a number of uh, cycles. Um, typically, uh, there are asset classes that move early in the cycle they include equities so even before the economic cycle has really made a made a decisive turn for a recovery equities tend to perform well and we saw that in 2022 uh with, with equity price performance and uh commodities were a bit slow off the mark uh, in they only really started to pick up in 23 uh, not in 24 uh, and the second half of this year, uh, as we get late into the recovery, has been um, particularly strong for some individual commodities. Um, precious metals have been good. Uh, we've been seeing some you know, uh, sporadic rallies in um, some metals and, uh, and in the energy market, although this sort of ebb and flow. Um, but it does seem to indicate that the latter half of the uh, recovery is uh, working well for commodities. Now, if we see this latter um, inning really become extended, that should be good for commodities. Um, and we've gone through most of 2023 with the market somewhat nervous about um, a recession uh, arriving at some point in time. Um, but that's been you know, somewhat been um, displaced with more of a soft landing narrative. And you know, it's really on the back of positive upside surprises in uh, data from uh, the US, 
uh, but even elsewhere, um, the length of the economic cycle seems to have been extended. Um, a soft landing is going to be better for commodities than a hard landing. Uh, commodities are a cyclical asset class, um, but even in the early phases of a recession, commodities tend to still perform quite uh, positively, while you know equity markets, uh, for example, don't. So. Um, you know, going into 2024, that soft landing is probably a better narrative than a hard landing. But either way, uh, commodities in the early phases of a recession could do well. You mentioned uh, precious metals there. Now, we've seen in uh, 2023, gold has surged past uh, $2,000 per ounce uh, more than once and remained uh, perhaps more elevated on average compared to 2022. Um, in contrast, we see copper, one of the most important industrial metals. It just doesn't seem to get a break. Um, it, it seems like it's been a year in 2023 for defensive commodities. Do you think that is likely to continue or might that change next year? Yeah, so 2023 has been uh, great for those defensive commodities like gold. Um, and that's been somewhat surprising uh, because the uh, the bond headwinds have been very strong and the dollar has been very uh, strong as well, which normally uh, would uh, push the metal prices down. Um, on the flip side for gold, what's been supportive has been relatively elevated inflation. So even though inflation is moderating, it's nowhere close to uh, central bank targets um, and therefore is still offering some degree of support to the to the to defensive um, uh, commodities like gold. Now, <clears throat> one other aspect uh, sprinkled in uh, in in October was uh, geopolitical risk. And with the war breaking out in Israel and Hamas, uh, that had a geopolitical premium in gold and um, that's largely dissipating now um, we've seen over a month uh, since the war started and the conflict hasn't spread out uh, beyond um, Israel and Hamas it hasn't uh, spread out into the broader region as many had feared um, and on top of that we are starting to see uh, the beginnings of of, of, of a truce um, uh, today. So uh, that is um, looking like the uh, situation there is improving and therefore the geopolitical premium for gold has um, started to fizzle away. But at the same time, the geopolitical premium has fizzled away. Uh, we're starting to get a bit of relief from the bond market. Um, so bond yields, uh, which were a 10-year US bond yields, which were touching uh, 5%, uh, just over a month ago, and now um, closer to 4.4%. So that um, has provided a massive relief for, um, for for gold. At the same time, the dollar has depreciated as well, uh, close to 3% over that time horizon, which is helping gold get to this uh, 2000, uh, close to that 2000 level. It sporadically gets there and pulls back. It, it is seeming like a... Um, you know, a bit of a uh, a resistance point there, um, uh, and I guess if we were to see geopolitical political risks uh, spike up once again, or we were to see recession risks uh, materialize, um, that could allow gold prices to uh, break that resistance. Um, but your point uh, that copper 
um, which you would normally expect in this point in the economic cycle, like deep into the uh, recovery period, should do better. And I think one of the reasons why copper hasn't done better is uh, the market is looking at China and China being the largest consumer of copper hasn't been uh, performing well from an economic standpoint for most of 2023. Um, and obviously things are turning around right now because China has been stimulating, but um, I don't think that the market really appreciates just how much the stimulus in, in China uh, is helping copper. Now, if you look at um, copper demand in China, it's actually remained really level despite the economic concerns. And part of the reason behind that is China has been using relatively weak prices opportunistically. It's been um, increasing its grid expenditure um, and that's with its eyes set on uh, becoming net zero by 2060. Uh, and one of the ways of uh, reducing its greenhouse gas emissions is to reduce the number of internal combustion engine vehicles on, on the roads and replace them with electric vehicles. Those electric vehicles need an upgrade in the grid and they need more charging uh, infrastructure. And so um, those things are very copper intensive with China expending much more on, on, on its grid uh, that, that copper demand has increased. And therefore we've seen level uh, copper demand despite the weak economy. But as uh, time has progressed, that stimulus is coming to the fore and uh, we're likely to see that push um, demand for copper even higher. You've, you've rightly uh, mentioned uh, China there. It is, of course, difficult to disentangle any discussion about commodities without mentioning the biggest producer and, of course, consumer of, of commodities in general, which is China. And uh, this extends beyond uh, copper as well, of course, uh, China's uh, relevance to the commodity spectrum. And we know that uh, markets got very excited in January 2023 regarding China's outlook, uh, but have since then been uh, largely disappointed. Uh, you mentioned a few things that China is doing now in terms of stimulus, but what are the things that you're looking forward to in terms of China's economic outlook for next year and what commodities might be affected by it? Yeah, great question. So let's put that context uh, back in. So, um, you know, China reopened tail end of 2022. Um, huge expectations, as you mentioned, because everyone thought China would be following the path of other uh, big economies and provide stimulus during that opening. China had a different idea. They, they, they looked at the rest of the world and said, Ooh, everyone's got an inflation problem. We want to avoid that. And therefore, they opened up with a lot of constraint. However, um, that weakness in, in economic activity became um, too large to bear uh, by the summer period. And China started stimulating at that point. Now, Normally, when China stimulates its economy, it goes big. And if you look back to, say, 2008, uh, during the global financial crisis, it really set out the bazookas. Uh, and every other um, economic soft patch since then has largely been met by uh, strong stimulus. Not this time. Uh, China did lots of micro 
stimulus activities uh, throughout the course of the summer um, up until today. Every couple of days they are announcing something, um, but each thing that they announce is not really headline worthy in of itself. Um, but in accumulation, um, they're actually quite meaningful. So while data was coming in really weak over the summer, um, after the stimulus had kicked in, uh, we're starting to see better retail sales data, industrial production data, even the third quarter GDP data uh, came as an ups up upside surprise. Um, some of the stimulus that, that we saw included uh, easing of lending rates by the People's Bank of China. Uh, and, um, you know, th that was also coupled with lots of sort of fiscal measurements as well. I think China is changing gears uh, once again in terms of stimulus, and it's going to become a lot more focused on uh, increasing its uh, in indebtedness um, to uh, to focus spending on, on, on fiscal projects. So in mid-October, uh, China actually had a budget review, and it rarely does that. Um, the last time it did that was in 2008 after its uh, earthquakes in Sichuan, uh, and the time before that was in the um, late 1990s during the Asia financial crisis. So using such a rarely um, you know, utilized um, uh, method for uh, increasing uh, budget, um, it will likely take its deficits up to 3.8%, um, clearly beating the 3% level that they set earlier this year. Um, and an extra 1 trillion renminbi of uh, borrowing is going to come from the federal government. And what the federal government is probably going to use with that, I mean, it, it says it's for disaster relief, but mostly it'll be spent on um, helping uh, the local governments actually move more of their debts off the uh, shadow banking market into the transparent markets and ease the um, hurdles towards uh, getting more spending into um, places like the real estate market, which has been uh, one of the uh, strong um, drawbacks of, of the of the Chinese economy. Uh, real estate ha sector has been uh, very slow uh, to recover and very little uh, stimulus has been offered in, in that area so far. Um, added to that, uh, China is using the policy banks to uh, streamline uh, investment into uh, the real estate sector, uh, particularly helping households um, borrow. And more recently, um, they're going to provide direct um, uh, unsecured loans to uh, real estate companies. So they really are sort of targeting this area. Now, what that means for, for commodities, um, you know, what we saw earlier this year, there was a lot of a focus on um, you know, stimulating outside of the real estate sector, uh, trying to get uh, you know, consumption levels outside of the real estate sector up. So that was very good for a lot of the base complex um, in terms of demand. Also, um, trying to get housing projects completed um, was useful for copper once again. Uh, there's lots of copper being used when um, the you know, houses are being completed. So when you'll get the wiring being put in, the piping being put in, uh, other base metals when the white goods come in, like like uh, refrigerators and, and washing machines. Now, um, and if the, the stimulus going forward um, is directed a bit more at 
kickstarting real estate projects once again uh, in, a, in a more broader setting, not just getting them completed, then that could help um, other metals as well, including iron ore and, uh, and nickel. Nickel is a very important metal for uh, steel production. Um, once again, it's going to be relatively constrained. We're not talking about 2008 over again, uh, but we think that the, there's going to be a bit more of a broader um, uh, you know, uh, support for, for the economy, including real estate. And that could be also quite supportive for the energy complex. Um, China has already been one of the uh, strongest drivers for uh, energy demand in, in 2000, 2023, um, accounting for about 70% of uh, demand growth. Um, with this stimulus in place, that could potentially extend the demand growth going into next year. Let's, uh, let's now pick up on something you alluded to earlier, Nitesh, uh, geopolitics. Now, if we look back at the last four years, there's been a lot of volatility in oil prices. Initially, it was uh, the pandemic to blame, but lately it has indeed been uh, geopolitics. And this geopolitics has uh, spurred many countries on to accelerate their transition away from fossil fuels. But even when it comes to the metals needed in the energy transition, it is not a case that every country can just produce as much as they desire. So talk about the evolving production challenges that the world faces when it comes to these critical raw materials. Yeah, um, and your question comes at a very timely uh, point. Um, so uh, this coming week, uh, COP28, uh, commences, you know, on 30th of uh, November, which is a time for uh, policymakers to take stock of um, what progress they've made for uh, meeting the net zero uh, targets and, um, f you know, figure out where all the holes are. And it's clear that to be able to uh, meet the, um, the aspirations of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit uh, temperature increases to just one and a half degrees above uh, pre-industrialized levels, um, there needs to be this so-called energy transition. We need to move away from uh, hydrocarbon dependencies, so that's uh, coal, oil, natural gas, uh, towards, towards more renewable sources of energy um, and implement technology that can utilize uh, those more uh, renewable sources of energy, for example, in the transport uh, market, uh, moving to electric cars uh, away from internal combustion engine vehicles. Now, um, the interesting thing is that the uh, COP28 is, is hosted in, uh, in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, um, putting this important meeting in a uh, you know, petrochemical state is sending an important signal. And that signal is that all countries need to be involved in the effort for decarbonization, including the big producers of, uh, of hydrocarbons. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be quite an interesting uh, set of, uh, you know, policy meetings that, that we that will see ahead of us. Um, but what uh, I think the light will be sh sh uh, shone on is that to be able to make this energy transition, we need lots of more metals. We need uh, copper for uh, what we just discussed earlier on, um, improving the grid, um, providing uh, charging infrastructure for cars. Uh, we need uh, nickel for 
uh, cathode active material in batteries. Uh, we need aluminium for lightweighting a lot of the technology um, so that less energy is needed uh, to, say, move uh, vehicles around or move machinery around. Um, the energy transition is particularly uh, metal intensive. And we believe that almost every metal, uh, every base metal that's involved in the energy transition uh, will see at least a doubling of their uh, demand uh, by the year 2050. Uh, and in some cases, some materials like cobalt and lithium are going to see um, lots more uh, demand. Uh, in the case of lithium, uh, possibly a tenfold increase. In the case of uh, cobalt, possibly a, a sixfold increase. Now, the problem um, that uh, exists right now is that a lot of the uh, production of these materials uh, comes from just a few countries. Um, just taking the mining uh, sector, um, if, if you take uh, cobalt, for example, uh, close to 80% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you take a look at lithium, uh, more than a third of the global lithium supply is coming from Australia. Um, such huge uh, supply concentrations in, in just the mining are a problem. But when you start to look at the uh, further downstream and look at refining of these materials, we see huge dominance of one single country, and that seems to be China. Across all the base metals and all the energy transition materials, China dominates. Um, now, the US and Europe have recognized this as a problem in, in their strategy for energy transition. Um, and bearing in mind, they've already gone through some of the problems of supply concentration in hydrocarbons, for example, um, with Europe's uh, strong dependency on Russia, uh, for its hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil in particular, um, that was really highlighted in, in 2022 when the war broke out in, in U Ukraine, scrambling for uh, new sources uh, created an energy shock. Um, I think uh, you know the, the Western world is keen to avoid these problems going forward and want to diversify their uh, sourcing of uh, critical raw materials that are needed for the energy transition. Um, so in the US, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act, a uh, piece of legislation that's really badly named. It, it won't do anything for reducing inflation, possibly uh, you know, increase it uh, considerably. But the whole idea behind the Inflation Re Reduction Act is to provide uh, tax credits to um, provide an incentive to uh, bring more of the production uh, and the value chain of these raw materials into the US borders. Uh, Repower EU, which was designed to help Europe wean off uh, Russian hydrocarbon dependency, um, has a lot of money that will be f uh, spent on the energy transition because the best way of reducing Russian dependency is to move towards uh, more renewable sources of energy. And then you've got the Critical Raw Materials Act, um, which has um, been seen large, uh, you know, broad approval from uh, the um, uh, Parliament and, and, and Council of the European Union uh, just two weeks ago, and um, we'll you know go into the final stages of its uh, tripartite uh, negotiations. Now, this Critical Raw Materials Act um, basically the EU has identified the materials that are uh, strategically important and have a um, 
you know, a strong uh, economic uh, impact uh, uh, on on, the, on its economy, and um, they have identified within uh, you know all the materials that it's consuming what are strategic raw materials, and for those they will have a certain requirement in terms of how much of the refining uh, needs to take place in the EU. Uh, how much of the materials will need to be uh, from recycled sources. Um, and it sets about a, quite an ambitious uh, agenda for um, sourcing this, this material. Unfortunately, um, there are massive knowledge gaps. Um, so the EU has to build some of these industries up from scratch. Uh, and I think that will be a time-consuming process. Um, Indeed, the, the IRA and CRM and repeat power EU uh, all may be seen by China as uh, acts of, uh, of a trade war uh, because they will start to restrict um, the amounts of imports from China. Now, that could lead to uh, a tit-for-tat ret retaliation. And once again, uh, we believe that will be something that will uh, be, uh, will drive the prices of these uh, raw materials up. So all in all, uh, we're expecting this process of um, uh, uh, of a green transition to be uh, leading to a, a force that we call greenflation, increasing the prices of these energy transition uh, materials. And we believe that one of the best ways of hedging against this uh, will be um, investing in the commodities directly. Excellent. So, Nitesh, for the final question, I want to explore a broader topic, uh, whether we are talking about the future uh, or whenever we are talking about the future, it is prudent, I suppose, to acknowledge that uh, there are always unknown unknowns, which quite often can be the biggest uh, market movers. And commodities are, of course, a, a diverse bunch. Now, is there a way for investors to hedge themselves at least as much as possible against those completely unforeseeable risks when investing in commodities? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, known knowns, but there's lots of unknown known knowns, right? So uh, known unknowns are, are, are great because then you can at least uh, say where where you at least define where your blind spots are and uh, put some risk management tools in place to uh, to, to to hedge there. But um, you know the latter unknown unknowns are really difficult. Now, what we found is that. If you look just back in even the last couple of years, um, commodities have been amazing at hedging against things that uh, people haven't expected. Uh, we talked a little bit about the energy crisis of uh, 2022. Um, you know, nobody really saw um, uh, you know the, the the war breaking out in Ukraine. Um, yet when it happened, energy prices uh, skyrocketed, and being invested in commodities uh, worked out very uh, beneficial for, uh, for for many investors, um, as it provided a partial hedge against some of the uh, adverse impacts of, uh, of 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 that war breaking out. Um, and. Looking forward, um, we think that we are probably going to see a lot more shock events uh, take place. Um, we talked a little bit about this energy transition that's going to lead to that so-called greenflation. Uh, but how many central bankers out there are factoring this in as part of their central um, 
you know, inflation um, a targeting framework. Um, I think very few. Uh, and the key thing is that when uh, central bankers uh, think about inflation, they're typically thinking about core inflation. When energy prices spike, when food prices spike, their usual um, thought process is that they are transitory. Um, yet we've probably we're probably going to go into a world where energy price increases um, and metal prices increases in particular uh, that that were very useful for the energy transition are not going to be uh, in, a, in a transitory mode when they, when they increase. We could be heading into a metal super cycle. Now, if that's the case, um, when prices are going up uh, for a key input into uh, industrial production, uh, that could hurt uh, corporate profits and therefore uh, be damaging for um, equities, for corporate bonds. Uh, but um, on the flip side, commodity prices could be rallying. Therefore, we believe that investing in commodities will be uh, a nice hedge towards what is a big macro risk that I don't think the policy framework at the moment is really uh, incorporating. Um, you have one segment of uh, policy making um, uh, you know, administrations, you know, the governments signing up to all sorts of new uh, climate targets, um, and they haven't quite got the policies in place yet to even uh, meet those targets. But when they do roll them out, and possibly they may roll them out quite late, uh, we may find um, the uh, supply demand uh, balances for the materials uh, being sort of uh, woefully short, and therefore. Um, we may see a scramble for prices after a period of relatively calm commodity prices. Um, and so that pricing signal, the lack of the early pricing signal may lead to very sharp increases and spikes later on. And once again, the best way to hedge against that is investing directly in those commodity futures. Excellent. So with that, uh, we'll conclude our discussion for this episode. Thank you so much, Natej, for all of your insights uh, today. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Commodity Exchange. If you want to hear more from us, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using. And please do take us uh, please do take a moment uh, rather to leave us a five star rating. You can follow us on LinkedIn or X at Nitesha WT and at Mubeen Tahir WT. And if you want to learn more about commodities, visit Wisdom Tree's website where we have a wide range of research materials and insights, including the outlook that we talked about in this episode. See you next time.